I want to start off today by talking about C.S. Lewis. Anybody familiar with C.S. Lewis? What a wonderful writer C.S. Lewis is. One of the great things about C.S. Lewis is his ability to tell a story within a story. So many of his stories that he writes are pointing to Christ. You know, it was C.S. Lewis's own words that he said that literally, he says, I was the most reluctant convert to Christianity. He says he fought it and fought it and fought it until he came to know Christ. And if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, he was an avowed atheist that became a Christian. He received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So this morning, I want to actually start off with a story from C.S. Lewis. And this book is called The Silver Chair. And in his book is a young girl named Jill Pole, and she's entered the strange woods of Narnia with a friend of hers named Eustace Scrub. And through some poor judgment, she now finds herself alone and separated from Eustace. And while she's alone, she gets really, really thirsty, and she goes in search of water, in search of water. And she sees a stream, but she stops dead in her track. You see, although she was extremely thirsty, she didn't go forward to get something to drink. Because just on this side of the stream was a lion. And she said, you know, she's thinking to herself, if I run away, this lion's going to come after me. But if I continue toward the stream, I'll go right into his mouth. And she's contemplating and she's saying, you know, it's almost, would it almost be worth it just to go and to get eaten by the lion, even if I can just get a sip of that water? And she says she hears it, and the thirst was so bad. And then she hears a voice say, if you're thirsty, you may drink. She said she wondered who had spoken, and the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away if I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to to do anything to me if I do come. I make no promise, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and, and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. You know, you read that story, and once again, C.S. Lewis has done a wonderful job. Because in that story, Jill represents us. And the lion represents Jesus. You see, oftentimes we see the water. And we hear about the living water that Jesus Christ offers us. But we're so afraid to go to that water because we're afraid of losing our lives. We're afraid of losing control of our lives. If you ever had an opportunity to, to talk to me, you would know that for a good portion of my walk with Christ, if I had to give a theme to my life, it was called playing it safe. 
I went to church maybe every other week. And when I got involved in church activities, it was really I was weighing the options of what else I had to actually do that day and was it worthwhile. So I was weighing the cost to myself. Did I really trust everything the Bible says? There were some things that I loved. I loved salvation. But there were some things that were required of me that I was like, I'm not willing to trust it that much with everything in my life. And my life was defined by here is my faith. These are the things that I did that were of faith. Oh, and then here's my real life over here. These were just things that I did, but this was real life right here. And I never understood how to live them both like that. Until one point in my life, I got on my knees and I said, Jesus, I said, take everything. I give you every aspect of my life. Everything, I give it to you. And it was probably the most scariest time of my life because in my head I'm thinking to myself, what the heck does this mean? What is he going to ask me to do? You know, our first thoughts are always, what country is he going to send me to to be a missionary? You know, we always think of like these extreme examples in our mind. I wanted to know his love. I would sit there and watch uh, you know, the worship band. I would see people just raising their hands and they were just so in love. I'm like, why can't I experience that? I wanted to know his love, but when I played it safe in my life, it didn't allow me to see it. It didn't allow me to experience it. But then when I finally said to him, Jesus, here is my whole life. I'm giving it to you. My faith shot through the roof. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, the years that I wasted. The years that I have wasted. And you know what? I look back to my growth and I realize now that I never wanted to give my all and my whole life to him because what it was going to cost me. I wasn't willing to pay the cost of following him and becoming just like Jesus. You see, it's Jesus' own words that said, whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I call today's sermon, Considering the Cost. Considering the Cost. Hesed love, unconditional, godly love is costly to the one who loves. But hesed love is not too costly for a true redeemer. My hope and my prayer today is that through this scripture that we're going to look at, that you really begin to see the bigger picture of whom this story is taking shape and whom this story is pointing to. You guys, let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we say this every week. Your word has so much to say. We pray today, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds to hear your word, Father. Speak to us through your word, and, and help us, Lord, not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, give us the wisdom to, to live this in our lives, Lord. And we ask this and we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be in Ruth 4, verses 1 through 6. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And we have the scripture up on the, uh, the screen, too. So Ruth 4, chapter 1 through 6. No, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. (laughs) Okay, it says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. 
And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there was no one besides you to redeem it, redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You see, where we pick up the story this week is Boaz is now acting on the promise that he made to Ruth. Remember, Paul was walking through the scripture last week, and Boaz makes the promise to Ruth that he will go and he will redeem. And where he is now, he's at the entrance of the city gates, and he's awaiting the closer, the nearer relative. And he sees him, he says, come here and sit down, friend. But let's not overlook the fact that what Boaz is doing is he's being obedient to the law. Because what the law says is there is somebody closer than he to be a redeemer that they go to him first. You see, it's just as easy for Boaz to say, look, Ruth, I love you. You love me. Let's just get married on the side. We're not going to follow the law. Because if we follow what the law says and we go to the nearest redeemer, there's an opportunity where he's going to say yes. So we could just circumvent the law and do it on our own. But you know what? Boaz believes that God is in control regardless of what the circumstances are. God is in control. And I experienced this in my own life, and I've shared this with many of you guys before. With my old employer, I actually did something very dumb. Was I sent an email to my employer at the time, was my current employer. I sent an email saying... Basically, I'm looking for a job right now. I had several good interviews, and I'm actually looking to leave the end of the following month. And I sent that to my employer by mistake. And as I told the last group, I said that the the words of a wise woman said to me during that time was, you just can't keep your mouth shut, can you? That was my wife. (laughs) So I sent this email. You know what? I, I went and I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I said, I made a big mistake. I said, honestly, I made a mistake. And I said, Lord, I take this whole situation and I give it up to you. I said, whatever you want to happen, Lord, may your will be done. I'm willing to, to, to face whatever consequences that my actions and what will happen from those actions too. But the one thing I did say was, Lord, I will not lie if and when they approach me about it. I won't lie, because if I lie, then what I'm doing is I'm saying, Lord, I don't trust you enough. I need to wrestle control back from you, and I need to try to manipulate the situation to make it work out in my favor. And I believe that because I was obedient to what God was calling me to do and I went to him, God blessed me through that situation. He truly blessed me through all of that. Something that I was so afraid about actually became a blessing in my life. And that's what's happening right here with Boaz. He knows that he has to go to somebody else first because there's somebody who is closer than he is and he goes and he does it. 
And he waits for him. And he calls ten elders to come in because this makes it a legal proceeding now. The author is doing this to, to include the fact, the idea, and stress that it's legally valid. What happens here? Boaz is going to the closer relative to be the redeemer. Boaz is trying to step up to be a redeemer. And I, Paul talked about this last week. Is what is the redeemer, the law of redemption? There was a provision in the law of Moses that said that the poor person who was forced to sell either himself or part of his property, that somebody who was a kinsman redeemer, somebody who was of your kin, a close relative of yours, could come and buy back that which had to be sold. The kinsman redeemer was a wealthy, it was a rich benefactor who paid the ransom price to redeem the property and the person. And that's what they're stepping up to do. So, for example, the person was forced into slavery. The kinsman would purchase their freedom. Or the debt threatened to overwhelm someone. Well, what happened was the kinsman would then redeem the homestead, and and then the family could then stay there. And that's what was happening right here. But here are the four requirements to be a kinsman redeemer. I want you to remember these. Number one, he must be near of kin. It's got to be somebody who is a close relative, family member. Number two, he must be able to redeem, meaning that he cannot be, need to be redeemed himself. Number three, he must be willing to redeem. And number four, the redemption was completed when the price was completely paid. And so Boaz says to the nearer relative, and he starts with the land. And the relative says, yes, I'll do it. Now, for those of you who love a good story, it's disappointing because you're thinking to yourself, well, who's this nearest relative? He's now said, yes, what happened to this love story that I was waiting for? All along, we've been taking on this love story, and all of a sudden, it just stops. He says, yes, why? Because for the nearest relative, it is a bargain. It's a bargain. He redeems the land, he works it, and he reaps all the benefits from it. And you think he's going to have to pass it along to an heir of Naomi? Naomi is getting older in age. She's not going to have an heir. He's going to get to keep that field. And not only that, there's something in the law called the year of Jubilee. It's seven sets of seven years. After the 49th year, it goes back to the original owner. What are the chances that Naomi's still alive? This is a bargain. This is a great investment. And that's why I look at this and I often wonder, you know, he probably couldn't even say yes fast enough. Yes. Yes, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz says, when you do that, Ruth the Moabitess is included with that too. So it's not just about redeeming the land and the property, but you also have to continue the family name with her. You see, that was the other provision as a kinsman redeemer, is if a family member died without an heir, the kinsman gave his name by marrying the widow and rearing a son to hand down the name. The question is, who is willing to pay that cost? You see, when we look at the nearer relative... He says yes until he realizes the true cost of everything. Until he realizes that he has to marry Ruth and he's going to have a child with Ruth. When it's just about the property, he's like, sign me up. 
But when it's about the property and you have to marry her and then have a child with her, that's a different story. You see, in the scripture, it says, lest I impair my own inheritance. Well, what does that mean? Well, does he have prior commitments to his own family? It doesn't say if he has a family and has children, but we can assume that if he impairs his own inheritance, he may already have children of his own, and he doesn't want to mess up their inheritance. Or maybe it's too costly. Maybe it's too costly. Because he's got to marry Ruth. He's got to take care of Naomi. He's got to take care of Ruth. He has to buy the field. Maybe he looks at it and says, this isn't a good investment. I'm going to spend too much money. Either way, he says, no. You can take it for yourself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Just as a side note, you know what's kind of interesting is, what is the term that Boaz calls him? He doesn't use a name. He says, friend, sit down. And when you translate that into Hebrew, from the Hebrew, what he's really saying is so-and-so. Come here and sit down. He's telling him so-and-so. You know, that person, that man re- remains nameless and faceless to this day. And then we look at Boaz. You see, Boaz, he's willing to redeem. He's willing to redeem regardless of the cost. He's willing to redeem not only the land, but also to continue the name and to marry Ruth. What he's doing is he's showing real love, hesed love. Hesed love steps into another person's world, regardless of the cost to themselves. What Boaz is doing is what we call he's incarnating. And oftentimes we think of the word incarnate to mean to embody in the flesh, the divine embodying and becoming down into the flesh. What he's doing is he's stepping into Ruth's world. He's incarnating with her. You see, did Boaz have prior commitments to his own family? We don't know if Boaz had a family. The scripture doesn't say. But you know what? It doesn't matter anyway because he still says, yes, I'll do it. Is it a problem for Boaz to afford both the, to afford both the field and the bride? It doesn't matter because he still steps up and says, yes, I will do it. Boaz loves Ruth regardless of what it's going to cost him. And do to him. He loves her unconditionally. Boaz is willing to pay the necessary price to redeem them. And when we look at Boaz, the image of somebody else begins to become clearer. You see, you look at the life of Jesus. Jesus was obedient even unto his own death. Jesus. He incarnated. It was Jesus that became flesh and blood. And it was Jesus who became sin. It was Jesus who paid the full price for us. And then you look at Jesus as compared to the closer relative. You see, did Jesus have an issue with commitments to his family? No, because it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And then it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Was it too costly for Jesus to take us and make us his bride? No, it wasn't. And in fact, it's what the the prophet Isaiah said 700 years before, and he says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. No matter what the cost was, Jesus paid the ransom 
for us. Jesus redeems both the property and what we call the posterity. It's continuing the name. And then it comes to us. What about us? You know, I read a, 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 a really great story the other day. And it talks about a group that's on Facebook. And this guy started this Facebook page. And what he was doing was he was trying to gather support to oppose the destruction of this historic fountain in downtown Copenhagen, Denmark. And he, was, uh, he created this group and he said, look, he says, we have to take action. We've got to join the cause and you've got to get involved. And he got more than 27,000 people on his page to sound the alarm to save this historic fountain. But here's the ironic part. It was just an experiment. And if they had read actually further down on the page, they would have seen that this was actually just a social experiment. You see, there is a, a professor of internet psychology, and he was conducting a social experiment on activism and online behavior. The term is called slack division. Slacktivism. And it's a mixture between being slacked and being an activist. And this is what it says. It says, slacktivism offers the feeling of doing good without actually having done anything at all. They are appealing because they're easy to join, though we often seem unconcerned with whether they actually accomplish something. It's simply one more click, one more forwarded email, one more status update. It won't require that we write long letters, stand in lines, or march in the streets. No one will ask you to do anything, and you can feel good about your brief participation. You know, I wonder sometimes as Christians, are we slacktivists? It's very easy to send an email to somebody and say, hey, forward this to 10 people in 10 seconds and God will bless you. (laughs) Right? Or post something on Facebook about Jesus. Or to see somebody in passing and said, I'm going to pray for you. Don't get me wrong. These are not bad things. But sometimes what God is asking us to do is to step into somebody's world. To step into somebody's world. We need to understand what true love looks like. True love, godly love. If we are to imitate our Heavenly Father, then we're called to act regardless of the cost to ourselves. That's what Boaz did, and that's exactly what Jesus did. How often do we have opportunities in our life where we... we, have the opportunity to step into somebody's world and we look at the cost and just like the relative, we say, no, I'm not going to do it because it costs me too much. True love incarnates. True love incarnates. What does that look like for you to incarnate with somebody? Husbands, what does it look like for you to incarnate with your wife? Wives, What does it look like for you to incarnate with your husband? What does it look like for you to incarnate with your family members? What does it look like for you to incarnate with your neighbors? Those you work with. That's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to live. That's how we're called to love. Again, it was Jesus that said this, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We find life when we lose it, for Jesus, Because Jesus says, if you love me, then you'll obey me. And that's what Jesus did. That's the very first commandment. And the second commandment is when we love other people as he does. 
That's the second commandment right there. Every day in our lives is a love choice. When I'm driving down the street and somebody cuts me off, I have two choices. I can either love my anger and love to be angry at them, or I can love Christ more and choose to love them and forgive them. And when I choose that option right there, there is a cost to me. It's my pride. It's not feeling satisfied by getting angry and honking the horn or thinking negative things about them. It's a love choice. It's a cost to us. I want to end with these words. Normally when there was a redemption, the conditions were written on the outside of a scroll that defined the transaction. And when we look in the last book of the Bible, and you go to Revelation chapter 5, it says that it was written within and on the backside of the scroll. You see, that is a deed that is subject to redemption. You see, we too, we need a kinsman redeemer. We need what the Hebrew word calls a goel. We need someone to not only come and to purchase the land, but to take us as his bride also. We need someone to take possession of what he already had purchased with his own blood. Jesus Christ bought us for himself, but he bought us out of our curse and out of our destitution. Jesus made us his own beloved bride. Jesus is our true kinsman redeemer. Why? Because he fulfills all four of the requirements. Number one, he must be near of kin. The scripture says that he was born in the likeness of men, that he had to be like us to take our sins. Number two, he must be able to redeem which means no redemption for himself. It was Jesus who was born without sin. Number three, he must be willing to redeem. Jesus said that he gave himself as a ransom for many and he came to lay down his life for us. And number four, the redemption was completed when the price was completely paid. It was Jesus that said, it is finished. And we have redemption through his blood. It's God's love that's providing an heir so that this family line can be completed. It's God's love that continued the line by making us new creations in Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says that he is the firstborn of all creation. It's God's love that does immeasurably more than anything that we ask or think. Because remember where we started off the story in chapter 1? They were in search of bread and everything that had happened in their life. Could they ever imagine that God was working this out right here? God's love shares with us the inheritance in Christ, even though it cost him his only son. Jesus is the true kinsman redeemer for all all who call on him in faith. And like Ruth, we too must lie at the feet of our Goel and ask God to take us under his wing and to be our Redeemer. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, words can't express how thankful we are, Lord. Jesus, you didn't see the cost as too much to yourself. 
to redeem us, Father God. Well, thank you so much for going to the cross and dying for us, Lord, to redeem us because we couldn't pay for it ourselves, Lord. Heavenly Father, help us. Give us the wisdom. Give us the courage, Lord, to step into somebody else's life, to incarnate into somebody else's life, Lord, because your word says that we should be imitators of you, Lord, and love like Christ. Help us to love other people, Lord, and not be slacktivists, Lord, but to love like you and to incarnate, Father. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.